0: Luke chapter fifteen. We'll continue as we go chronologically as best we can through the Gospels. Glad we have so many uh, returned college students, family members traveling. Uh, We have some that are gone and some that are here as a result of the holiday season coming up. We're grateful for that. If you have not already signed up to be part of Project Thanksgiving, our community or a neighborhood outreach this week, encourage you to do so. See Pastor Bill or um, Heather or Cooper Lee. And they'll be heading that up. That that will end this Thursday morning on Thanksgiving. As those of us who are here in town still will deliver those meals. And uh, but we've had some really neat involvement in that. A little bit of different nuance of it this this year. Going to be giving out uh, the meals plus a special gift to every family. Uh, kind of manufactured right here uh, from our church fellowship. So we're thankful that. We'll let you know on Thursday when you come, or we'll give you testimony next Sunday about that. But Luke chapter fifteen. We'll have several things going on after the service today. Very quickly, we'll have a men's meeting about the camp out. If you're interested at all in that, we'll meet right here. Very quickly, I mean like one minute after we dismiss, right here, okay, if you would. And then 15 minutes after we dismiss, I'm gonna be very timely today. 15 minutes after we dismiss, we will have choir practice right here. And so if you're involved in the Christmas program, please make your way up there as soon as you can. When you hear the music playing, you'll know it's time to stop whatever you're doing and Hit hit the road right up here to the choir loft. So thank you for being a part of that. Luke chapter 15. The title for the message this morning is "What Makes God Happy." What makes God happy? You ever th- thought about that? I don't I don't know about you, but as I was getting to know the Lord, this is something that I learned about God, because for some reason, at least in my mind, when I think of a deity, um, because we're surrounded by talk of false gods all the time. I want to see them on television all the time, hear about them in other cultures. I can tend to let some of that thinking filter into my own life, and I can think that God, sometimes I could treat him like that as this impersonal... uh, It's not a creature. He is a creator. He is the creator. And I hate to even call him a deity. To me, that sounds like it's dumbing it down, right? The God of the universe is somehow like what we hear about all the other false gods. has this impersonal nature to him. So if he's impersonal, then... I don't know, does he get happy about things? We know he gets angry, right? Uh, And rightfully so, it's sin and the destruction sin has caused on his image bearers. But does he get happy? Well, Luke chapter 15, God, Jesus, God in the flesh, shares with us what God gets happy about. And it's a really, really exciting study. And I'm not going to be able to do it justice this morning. It's 32 verses. We're not going to read them all, but let me ask you a question, and I need an honest survey here, okay? So I need you to raise your hand with one of these. You're not going to be embarrassed, at least not by me, okay? So how many have heard before of the prodigal son? Just raise your hand. Okay. So put them, put them down. How many know enough about the prodigal son story that you kind of know the title and you have an idea of what it's about? How many know the prodigal son story well enough that you could turn around and teach it to somebody else? Okay, that gives me an idea of where we're at. Here's what I need to do today, because we're trying to be very timely, is I need to fast-track the story of the prodigal son, but not ignore it. Because what you're going to find and what you're going to see, hopefully, if I can stay out of the way and let God speak today, which is my intention, you're going to see these three parables we're getting ready to look at all have exactly the same message. A little bit different emphasis, but the same exact message. And what you're going to find today is the prodigal son is really not a story of a backslidden Christian coming back to Christianity, coming back to God and God accepting him. You say, well, uh, that's, that's what it... No, don't forget this. When you're interpreting a parable, the interpretation of the parable, the application of the parable has to be the same application that Jesus intended. You and I cannot come up with our own applications about the parables. It has to be what Jesus intended here. And sometimes that is a challenge, but I trust this morning after we read all three of these and study them, you're going to see a crystal clear thread through each and every one of them. It's an exciting study as we see what brings God joy. What makes God happy? Chapter 15, verse 3, would you start there with me? It says, And he, this is Jesus, spake this parable unto them. Now he is speaking to the Pharisees. Another group, this is a common occurrence, another group of false religious leaders. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and his neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you... That likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons, which need no repentance. Keep in mind who he's talking to here, religious leaders, form of godliness. They were going through all the motions, but they didn't love God any any more than a pagan in the next country over. Verse 8, here's another parable. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver... If she lose one piece, doth not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And then he goes into the story of the prodigal son, and he said, A certain man had two sons. We'll go through that parable at the very end. It's our final point. But would you continue on in the study with me? Today's illustrations, given by God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, 100% God, 100% man, gives us insight into the way God thinks as as He shows us here what He delights in, What, what what, what brings Him joy. In our study today, we see that God finds delight in the sinner that accepts his gift of salvation. God finds delight, and I hope as we look at these parables, you'll see how amazing that actually is. As we examine all three of these stories, which all end the same, by the way, all three. God is delighting in something at the end of each of these stories. We should also examine our own hearts as his children. If you've been saved by the grace of this amazing God, there ought to be a similarity in what we find joy in. And you'll see that in these stories. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, professions of faith in Christ and in modern American culture, and that's really mostly the only culture I can talk about. I, don't, I know very little about foreign cultures other than what I've observed. I feel like in our culture it's easy to get jaded about um, this idea of a profession of faith or someone getting saved. You know, there's the minimal excitement we feel when you hear, okay, just do a self-inventory right now, the minimal excitement you feel when you hear that someone got saved is really telling about how this has jaded us. I, I, I can only guess. I think it's an educated guess, but I think this jading may be because... Sorry, hit the wrong button. <laughs> Maybe because... Uh, in comparison to the number of people who say that they've been saved or that we uh, we see and they've given testimony that they came to Christ, the number of people who claim to know Christ in comparison to the few lives that we see that are actually changed can cause us over time, without even intentionally doing it, lessening how big of a deal it really is that someone got saved. Changed, people that have their lives changed, Um, they now follow a very different path. You know, a path that keeps bringing them back to Jesus. That's the road of salvation. Or those who claim to be followers of Jesus, and, and then they turn from Him one day and reject the faith entirely. I mean, we're observing all of these things, right? We don't have the omniscience of Jesus Christ or of God Almighty, and so we observe from the outside. And we make all sorts of suppositions on what is actually true based on what we see in the lives of others. We do it all the time. It's it's almost impossible not to. You have to fight against it. In contrast to being jaded, to this fact of salvation that, that occurs, is the joy that you experience from somebody, from being with somebody who actually comes to Christ and you see the transformation. You see the wonder that begins to grow in that person's life. You see the hunger and the thirst to know God, and to grow in Him, and really to do whatever. It's, I mean, it's nothing short of invigorating. But what do we see so often? We see people pray, pray some prayer, they ask God to save them, and it seems to make very little difference. Well, that's not exciting at all. I mean, it's pleasant at best. So what is it? What, what makes the difference? You know, we look at those people, we hear about those things, and we remain hopeful that God will change and transform that life. We do. You know, we often hear about childhood prayers that led us to salvation. I just read a missionary letter just two days ago of a woman that, that made, a, made a, a childhood prayer when she was five years old. And this is not me condemning anybody that got saved when you are five. That's between you and God if that happened. But these childhood prayers that led us to salvation, and then somehow, so many of those people tell us, well, I I was backslidden, or I got away from God, and I came back to him 10, 15, 20 years later, and and I either rededicated my life, or or God became real to me. But can I just share with you, I have a sneaky suspicion that that time that you rededicated your life, or when God became real to you, was actually the time that you got saved, can I just share that with you? We have accepted this watered down, dumbed down idea of salvation that someone can get saved and we hope it makes a difference. Now that is foreign to the New Testament. Every person in the New Testament, it made a difference. Every single person. Does that mean the person was perfect? Absolutely not. How could we be? Saddled with this sinful flesh for the rest of our physical life? How on earth could you and I be perfect? How on earth could this be some standard that we have to reach this in order to keep our salvation? Absolutely not. Salvation is not of us. It's of Him. Here's how hard it was for you and me. The difficulty of letting go of your stupid pride and your grip on your sin and giving it to God. That's how hard it was for you. And I look at that and I say, shame on me that that was hard. But it was. It was. Why? Because I'm stuck with this for right now. But God takes me and plants within me a new nature, and His Holy Spirit brings to life that which was dead in me, that which was bound in sin, and gives me something to hope for, gives me a purpose in my life to live for Him, to know Him, to grow in Him, to take His word that we've been blessed with in America, to digest it if you would, to allow the seeds of the word of God to fall on that now regenerated heart so it will grow and it will bring forth fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold as the parable says in Matthew chapter 13. But it grows in every saved person. These parables talking about this very thing. Genuine salvation and why this makes God so happy. So let's, let's back up a little bit. We've got, if, if we kind of take these parables as a whole, and that's about best we're going to be able to do today, and you can go home and study these things. We don't even have fellowship groups on Wednesday nights, so we can't dive deeper even. So you're going to have to do your due diligence on this. But the three parables today, I mean, they're all iconic parables, right? The, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. I mean, we've heard all of those many times, if you've been in church at all, in messages. You've heard them in devotionals. You've heard them in podcasts. Probably the third one being the most popular, and we've actually given it our own title, the prodigal son. Very iconic. But remember, the truth in the parable is only the truth that Jesus is trying to convey to these people. That truth transcends to us 2,000 years later as being just as true as it is today. So what is the context? Remember, we... we, Actually, you don't remember because we didn't read that verse. You're going to find out in a second... He's speaking to the leaders and experts in false religion. I mean, these men were well-respected. Then he's speaking to the crowds of people that were curious and were following him. Jesus is teaching. He's confronting. If you remember in Luke chapter 14, his last discourse, very lengthy, ends with a challenge to count the cost before you decide to follow him. He wasn't just trying to get as many people to pray and believe as he could, although he absolutely wanted that. He said, think about this before you do it. Any man that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. There's no halfway. You either decide to embrace the world and keep your own ways, or you decide to embrace the gift of salvation and follow Jesus, and you embark on a path that is extremely difficult and supremely amazing at the same time. It's not a call to sinless perfection or some standard that determines that if you do not reach this, you will no longer be on this path. If you do not reach this standard, you will no longer be in the family of God. Absolutely not, but rather a conscious decision, a change of mind, repentance that turns to God. And all this happens at the moment of salvation. And so Jesus told them at the end of chapter 14, we're going to get back in our text here, Luke 15. At the end of chapter 14, He says, He that hath ears to hear, by the way, let him hear. If you can understand this, this is for you. Then our Lord shows us and them the reason He gives the next three parables. Let's look in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. These two verses show us why He gave these three parables and will launch us, this is a foundation for understanding where Jesus is going, so we interpret these correctly. In verse number 1 of Luke 15. Then drew near unto Him all the publicans and sinners for to hear Him. Who were the publicans and sinners? Publicans were the traitors to the Jewish national nationality I mean more than religion these men had betrayed the country of Israel they were now collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government they were hated they were rich but they were hated the rest of them it says it categorizes as sinners these were the derelicts of society these were the ones that were over and above doing the outward sins that everybody knew about not the inward ones that everybody tried to hide but the ones right out there in public, prostitution and everything else that went with it. The publicans and sinners. It says, then drew near unto him, Jesus, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. These are the people that wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. But there was, the Pharisees were there too. It says in verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. That was a joke, but it was almost, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) that serious moment, I throw a joke in there, right? That doesn't fit. Look at a couple words here, though, I want you to see. Who was drawing near? I mean, drawing near was not just a curious crowd. There was a specific type of person that was drawing near here. It was the Pharisees. It was the ones that would not associate, I'm sorry, backwards, it was, it was the opposite of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not drawing near. The ones that were drawing near are the ones that wouldn't be associated by the Pharisees. So there's two groups of people. One stood on the outside and one wanted to hear more. It says the ones that are standing on the outside, the Pharisees and the scribes, it says they murmured. They murmured. It's a Greek word, dagongidzo. It means to grumble, to mutter, complain. You can see the onomatopoeia in there, right? When when a word kind of sounds like what is happening there, you know, they're they're grumbling, they're murmuring at what's happening here. We see it as well in Luke chapter 19, right here on the screen. When they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. This is Jesus heading to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was a sinner as well, in the eyes of the people. In regards to ministering to the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, the publicans, the prostitutes, and anyone really that does not seem lovable, that's what these parables are all about. It's the reason for these next three stories. He takes these three parables and teaches us about himself and about ourselves. If you look at the parables, everyone is, the structure is similar, right? At the beginning, there's someone or something that is lost. Uh, then there's a seeking that's going on. Then there's a finding that's going on. Then there's a celebrating. There's, there's a picture of God being happy at the end. And it's literal in two of them, and it's figurative in the other. But the, but the end result is the same. You have one sheep out of a hundred that goes missing. You have one coin out of ten that goes missing. You have one son out of two. I have no idea if the progression there is on purpose. But they all have the same theme. However, the emphasis changes, right? On the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the emphasis is on what was lost. The sheep was lost. The coin was lost. Those are non-human objects. As Jesus puts a human element in the third one, now the emphasis switches to the lost one coming back. And the Father's reaction to that. And it's wonderful. If you retell the parables, and I'm gonna do my best to do that, there's a man that has a hundred sheep in the parable of the lost sheep. Okay, this is this is by far my favorite illustration of it. Um, chokes me up when I think about it. I, I I'm that sheep right there. Man has a hundred sheep, one comes up missing. The shepherd leaves the ninety and nine to go find that one sheep. He then takes that sheep and he, and he lifts them and puts them on his shoulders, and he brings him back into the fold. And then he doesn't just do that. He now calls all his friends and neighbors together and throws a party in celebration of this one sheep that he's now brought back in, he brought back into the fold, by the way. He's celebrating. And Jesus says, "Likewise, there's joy, joy in heaven over one sinner that repents." He goes on with another uh, parable, the, the parable of the lost coin. And in this parable, there's a woman that has 10 silver coins, and she loses one of those coins. One coin is probably a drachma, okay? It's one day's wage, a decent amount of money, especially if you lost all 10, but she just loses one. But in this one silver coin, to get it back, she lights a candle. She sweeps the house. She's looking everywhere for it. When she finds the coin, she calls her friends and her neighbors together. I mean, this is a major announcement to her asking them to celebrate the return of this coin. And Jesus says, likewise, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. Joy. Again, joy. And then he goes into the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son, as many of us know it. A man has two sons. One son asks for his inheritance early. The father concedes and gives it to him. The son takes the money, the son moves away. After moving away, he basically wastes all of this inheritance on the party life. The only specific thing he was doing that we know of was he was spending his money on prostitutes. When the money is gone, the area, the, the land he has moved to, is, experiences this great famine. Everybody starts running out of food. He already ran out of money. Now he's running out of food He finds himself in such desperate need that he associates himself now with a pig farmer in the local area and asks him to hire him to take care of the pigs. And then he further goes downhill, comes to the point where he has nothing to eat, and he's even willing to eat what the pigs are eating. The Bible says he comes to himself. And he looks and he thinks back, and here I am in the field eating with the pigs In such desperation, and I know that at home, where I left, even the servants have it better than I do right now. He realizes I need to go back, and he does. He goes back to the father, and what you would think would be kind of a convincing role that the that the son would have to do to the father to let him back in. I mean, he pretty much ruined. I mean, hey, it was your choices. You're gonna have to live with your choices. But on the converse of that, in the illustration, this is not a real story, uh, in the illustration, the father looks and sees the son coming, and the father runs to him, has tears in his eyes, maybe similar to this, embraces the son, welcomes him back in the family. The son tries to humble himself before the father, and he he has that humble heart, and the, the father almost rejects the act of humility because he's so joyful that the son is back. He brings him back into his household. He tells the servants, let's get a party going. Let's have a feast. Go kill the fattened calf, the one we've been saving for the feast. Uh, Go kill that, that cow. And we're gonna have a party. My son is home. Bring the best clothing. Clothe this young man. Obviously, he probably looked a sight. So this party, this feast gets going. It's getting quite noisy. There was one person, seems to have been forgotten. Out in the field, working hard, as he had probably been doing for years, was the older brother. He hears this music. He asks, he's like, What in the world's going on? He asks the servant, Go back and find out what's going on. He goes back and he brings back message to the older son It's your brother. He's home. They threw him a party. The older brother comes back to the house, and what he finds there angers him so much. He will not go into the party. He stands outside. The father who is throwing the party on the inside hears that the older son is on the outside, and he goes to him, and he tries to entreat this older son to come into the party And the older son's reaction is this reaction of pride and self-righteousness. All of these years, I have been faithful to you. I have obeyed you. I have done what I was supposed to do. You didn't even give me a goat for a feast. And here you are, your other son, your son, not my brother, your son, went and wasted all of your money on prostitutes, and you're acting like he's the best thing ever. And the father says... This is, this is fitting what we're doing. This is fitting. And he shows us into the heart of God as he says, my son, which was lost, has now been found. My son, which was dead, has now been brought back to life. Come in. Come in. But he wouldn't. And here we see such a clear picture of the Pharisees that we're standing listening to this teaching I have given you the scriptures I have vested in you experts of the law the truth to teach the people of who I am that I would come that I would when I would come I would bring salvation not only have you not taught the people this but you have rejected the ones who are willing to come and listen you are that older brother standing on the outside bitter And angry that I'm here. Bitter and angry that I am drawing publicans and sinners. I am drawing the poor, the maimed, the lame, the halt to me because they want to be healed. They want to be saved. You're bitter about that. You are the older brother. That is the story of the prodigal son. We see very quickly three things within these parables. We're just going to lump them all together, and you're going to have to go home and study. Number one, and it's in your bulletin if you want to take notes, fill in the blank there. Number one, we see that God values that which has been lost and wants us to be found. Wants us to be found. I hope you're glad of that. Many times the emphasis on these parables is on that which is lost, but I think what we should be looking at is emphasis on what God is valuing here. God values those who come to Him. He values that. He wants us to be found. The shepherd feels the loss of that one sheep. What does he do? He goes to get him. The woman feels the loss of that one coin. What does she do? She does everything she can. Turns the lights up, sweeps the whole house. I'm going to find that one coin. The father feels the loss of only one son. I mean, he had two. There's still one there. And matter of fact, the one he lost was the one that didn't even want to be there. But what loss does he feel? He feels the loss of the one that left. We see that God values that which has been lost. It's not showing weakness, rather, it's showing immeasurable love on the part of God Almighty. We see this throughout the scriptures. Man, I'm not going to have time for this. We may may do part two next week. We'll see. All right. We see, uh, we'll try to do this one point at least, that um, our lostness is started in the garden. Do you remember back there in the Garden of Eden? Here we are in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible says. Speaking of Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they've bitten the fruit, they have disobeyed the one thing God told them not to do. Like Brother Nash said last week, you tell me to not do one thing, what am I going to do? That one thing. That's exactly what they did. True to our human sinful nature. They ate that fruit. It says, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. Guaranteed, that broke God's heart. They hid themselves from him. Those who had been created to have fellowship with God now were hiding. This is what sin has done to us. We get used to that, oh, separ- we're separated from God. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. That's, that's horrible. We don't understand how horrible it actually is to God. You don't understand how horrible it is that you have been separated from your Creator. And if you understood, it would give you this amazement at what God has done to bring you back. Our lostness started in the garden. And he values that which was lost. Our lostness continued for thousands of years. We see here in this messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, I want you to notice what he says here. All we like sheep have gone astray. This is not talking about Christians that have backslidden. This is before Christ ever came. This is, this is a, uh, a prophecy of Christ's coming. Listen to the, the order here. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And because of that, I put that in there, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. God says, you have left me. You have turned. You have turned your own way. There's about five other verses telling what we had done here. And because of that, I'm going to come down here, the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and I'm going to take your punishment. I'm going to take your stripes. Because you left. And because I value that which is lost greatly. Greatly. Our lostness was motivated uh, It motivated His first coming. Our lostness motivated His first coming. We see here in Luke 19.10. Why did Jesus come? It wasn't just to die on the cross, but the mission ended at that point, death and resurrection. But here's His emphasis right here in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man, that's, that's the term for Jesus and His humanity. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Seeking to save that which was lost. Our lostness motivated his first coming. Our lostness now delays his second coming. See how much he values you. He is even putting off his second coming until the right amount of people get saved. I don't know what that amount is, but he does. Probably has something to do with the fact that he knows who's going to get saved. I'm not for sure on that. But God is holding off His second coming. For this reason, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise. What's His promise? I will return. That's what it's talking about in the chapter. As some men count slackness. No, He's not snoozing. He's not slow on this. He hasn't missed it somehow. But He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All those who are lost will be found. That's what His desire is. So He's delaying His coming. Because once He comes be too late and he wants us to be found he great value he places on that which is lost those who are lost we're of great value to him i, I think we're going to end on that thought this morning would you just take a second and just kind of bow your head I, I want you to really focus in on your value This is not a self-help sermon where I'm just trying to pump up your self-esteem. That's not it at all. But it ought to affect us when we realize how valuable we are to God. And the emphasis on the parables this morning is the value of you before you were saved. Not now that you're in God's kingdom, now you're valuable. God valued you before you were ever found. God went looking for you. God sought you. The Bible says that no man can come to God except he is drawn by the Holy Spirit of God. God has drawn you to salvation. All you had to do, as hard as it was, is turn to Him. God, I'll give this up. I'll let go. You had to humble yourself. Allow your sins to be forgiven. Accept this gracious gift. You say, well, how could it be that easy? Well, number one, it's not easy. It cost your savior his life. And as a result, it should cause such awesome wonder and repentance in the hearts of every lost sheep. Everyone that has been breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, has come out of your mother's womb and has come upon the conclusion at some point in your life that I, I've done wrong, God is real. What do I do about this? God says he's shown you that. He's left you witness of himself all around you in creation. And he's drawn you to him. You were lost. God desires for you to be found. How many would say this morning, you'd be maybe honest, nobody's looking around, just me. You'd be honest. Pastor Sean, would you pray for me? I, I have not been found. I've never been saved this morning. Would you pray for me this morning? And Just slip your hand up and slip it down. Slip it up, slip it down. I've never been saved. I have not been found. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Anybody else? Believer, I hope and pray that I have sufficiently stayed out of the way this morning and you have seen your God For who truly is the one that sought you the one that found you and the one that gladly with joy forgave your sins and saved your soul because this is who he is might this change the way we see him this morning might this change the way that we see others who are not as lovable as we may not like who are not as fitted into our mold. Ultimately, God wants every sinner that will listen, every sinner that will hear his word, every sinner that will come. He desires that because he has life. He has plenty of love to go around. He has plenty of forgiveness. All of grace this is our God. Father, we love you this morning. We're so grateful for who you are. We revel in the fact that you sought us, you found us, and you desired for us to be there, Lord. You did everything within your power with the exception of taking over our will and making us do it. God, we praise you this morning give us a correct picture of who you are. correct picture of our place now in this, this scheme, this world. Help us not to stand on the outside like the Pharisees. Help us to get right in there with them like you did. To show these others, Lord, who are lost, these others who have not been found, to show them what it means to be in Christ. God, we want to do that strengthen us, help us. In your name I ask, Amen. Would you just stand